Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Professor Kate Starberg. Professor Starberg is an associate professor in the Department of Human-Centered Design and Engineering and director of the Emerging Capacities of Mass Participation Laboratory at the University of Washington. Professor Starbird is also a co-founder of the University of Washington's Center for an Informed Public, which formed in 2019 around a shared mission of resisting strategic misinformation, promoting an informed society, and strengthening democratic discourse. Among other uh, important things, Professor Starbird, thank you for passing judgment with us. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me on. When I read your bio to the audience, I used a term I had never used before, which is crisis informatics. And I'm wondering if we can touch on that a little bit more and if you could give us some examples of what exactly does this mean? Yeah, sure. Actually, crisis informatics is a a sort of emerging field around 2010. My advisor, Leisha Palin at the University of Colorado, was one of the founders of that field. And um, there was a few other folks working on it at the same time, but they sort of coined the term at the same time. Uh, And it really is looking at how um, information communication technologies, so everything from social media, but to other kinds of tools and and, um, other kinds of ways of communicating are are used during crisis events. And by crisis events, um, we can define it in in a lot of different ways. She was really focused on natural disasters. Um, but we also have looked at sort of man-made disasters, acts of, acts of terrorism, um, wide-scale emergency events of, of different kinds, um, uh, chemical explosions, things like this. So, so things that are, are disruptive, that um, may have casualties, that disrupt the social fabric of people's lives for a period of time. Um, certainly the pandemic is a, is a crisis event that I would, would I, we would kind of put into this umbrella and sort of look at how people use um, these these technologies to communicate, to organize, to share information, to spread rumors, um, and, and and increasingly we're seeing these tools used for political gain during these events um, by by folks who want to you know shape what the sense making process is after these disaster events towards their towards their goals. Yeah, that so you mentioned the pandemic, and I'm hoping could you walk us through. Like if you were going to talk to your class and say, okay, this is what we're worried about when we talk about crisis informatics, and let's use the pandemic as our example. Could you walk us through, you know, obviously we're not at the end of the pandemic, but how concretely did you see this begin? And where did we reach maybe a crisis point? And then what can we do about it? It's an interesting question. I don't know if I'll I'll be able to answer all of the dimensions there, but in March of 2020, I think about March 15th, 15th of March 20th, 20th at some point, I just sat down and I was like, I'm, I'm going to write what I what I'm thinking is about to happen. Um, it's clearly, like we're already shutting down, things are already happening. But um, from a crisis informatics perspective, I wanted to kind of think about what is the information space about to look like, and because we know something about crisis events. So crisis events are characterized uh, often, um, probably it's kind of inherent to their nature, is that there's uncertainty. 
as a crisis is, is unfolding, things are being disrupted. Uh, and for some people, the definition of crisis is that something like this hasn't quite happened before, and we can't sort of solve it and address it with our routines. Like it's disruptive of our of our routines, and we're going to have to do something different. Um, as part of that, there's this informational uncertainty that I mentioned, where we don't really know what comes next, and that, and we don't really know what's happened. We're trying to put different kinds of pieces of information together to understand things, but the information is uncertain, and it may not be known yet. And then that uncertainty has a tendency to cause anxiety. We don't like that feeling of uncertainty. And so we try to resolve that uncertainty um, in various ways, often by coming together. Um, in, in, we used to do it in person. Now we do it often online, especially during the pandemic. We come together and we try to resolve that uncertainty by explaining things to each other. So coming up with theories, bringing evidence that we have together. And so this process is called co collective sense-making and it's very common after, during and after crisis events. And a byproduct of collective sense-making can be rumors, um, false rumors, including, and, um, and also collective sense-making processes can be manipulated to spread mis- and disinformation. So looking at the pandemic, we had this massive uncertainty, scientific uncertainty. We just, it was a novel virus. We didn't know how it was going to spread. We didn't know which treatments would work. We didn't know if social distancing was viable and if it was going to help. So we had all these kind of, um, you know, all these uncertainties. And over time, they've they've narrowed, but we still have a lot of uncertainty around um, COVID-19. And so that uncertainty, is, I would, as I said in this blog, is like that uncertainty is going to drive a collective sense-making process that's going to put a lot of false information out there and be manipulatable by those who want to who wanna shape our information spaces towards their ends. And so, um, you know, the last year or so, year plus now, has been um, very much what we would expect as crisis informatics researchers around, especially around the spread of mis and disinformation. Um, it's just the prime conditions for for the spread of misinformation, accidental rumors, as well as for people to try to manipulate it for political purpose. If you were going to talk to your class about this, are there a few moments where people, maybe it was the president, maybe it was the members of the administration, I'm talking about the former president, maybe it was others in the media where you thought, okay, this is a quote that I need to use in my class to explain what crisis informatics is and how it plays out. Were there a few statements or articles? Okay, this is it. This is what we're looking for. You know, I think we we took a lot of different examples. One of the ones that I think was interesting then, and it still is, was around the hydroxychloroquine uh, mm -hmm. treatment um, and the way that it became politicized uh, and 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 how it spread. It actually, if you look back to the earliest kinds of communication in in English speaking Twitter on hydroxychloroquine, it's actually coming out of a Chinese state media in January. And then it kind of dies down for a while. And then it comes back um, through some white right-wing amplifiers. And eventually um, President Trump starts talking about it. And then you get this, uh, this reaction on the other side where people on their left are like, well, it can't work because, was, because President Trump has said it worked. And, and really the science was still working its way out, right? And eventually the science says, you know, really doesn't work. It's actually dangerous. But it took a long time. And you could see people get into these sort of camps around it and seize on different scientific studies um, that said different things and had these sort of battles about whether or not this was going to be a viable treatment. And so there's this, this uncertainty. Um, and then, you know, one of the things we, we talked about 
as crisis informatics researchers and just crisis communications researchers is like, you know, as public communicators, you have to be very careful about, you know, including that uncertainty when you say things, you, you don't say things like this is a cure and, and everything, you know, everything's going to be better. And so we could call out some of President Trump's statements as being sort of harmful to trying to figure out what's actually happening and leading us kind of in the wrong direction. Um, and and then the the crisis informatics piece is just watching these things spread online and seeing how different communities picked up different narratives and and politicized them in ways that kind of made it hard to figure out what the actual science was because people were I mean there's people are still confused about whether or not they should be using hydroxychloroquine and that's because you know there's all this you know discourse um, that was you know in some ways you know designed to confuse people I don't think it was uh, necessarily purposeful I think you know. Um, China state media, and then eventually President Trump seized on it as a potential good news story and something to distract from like was a really bad situation. And, um, and it led to more uncertainty and, and worse outcomes. Speaking of uncertainty and worse outcomes, one of the things that I was looking at in preparation for our discussion is this your Twitter feed, and you have an amazing set of graphics and a thread that you shared on Twitter called participatory disinformation. And you talk about how it led to the January 6th insurrection. And I'm hoping that you can walk us through the set of graphics. I know it's difficult to summarize because the graphics are so helpful, but what do you want people to take away from that thread? And I think it's so important that we talk about the insurrection in the context of disinformation and then try and move on to solutions. So again, if you could walk us through, what was that thread about? Yeah, this is something I'm still working on. That was a first kind of attempt I borrowed from like a... The first time I did, a, I did a presentation, I then did a tweet thread afterwards to kind of explain this presentation. And we still are thinking about, um, my colleagues and I are thinking about how to best write this write this up. But we have put it out in a, in a couple of different formats so far. Um, so what we were, let's go back. In the fall, my research team, like lots of colleagues were collaborating. We were working as part of the Election Integrity Partnership. And we were just tracking um, mis and disinformation related to the election, really focused on mis misinformation, disinformation re related to election procedures. Um, and had started in around August. By you know mid-September, we recognized that what we were mostly focused on were false claims about voter fraud. And we could already see them happening and taking shape, this kind of um, disinformation campaign to sow doubt in the election results. And so we were tracking that. We tracked it hundreds of different narratives um, and all sorts of different things from claims that, you know, mail carriers were purposefully getting rid of Trump ballots to claims that dead people had voted um, to claims that, you know, the voting machines were automatically switching votes from from Trump to Biden or whatever. So there were just hundreds of different claims. And so there's a tendency to think of disinformation, especially from our 2016 experience in the U.S., as sort of this foreign kind of uh, infiltration and someone from the outside is coming in and they're using inauthentic accounts and they're coordinating these kinds of activities. With the 2020 disinformation around the election in the United States, it was domestic actors, <laughs> often spread by, by blue check verified accounts. Um, and it wasn't just top down, it was also bottom up. And that's like the, the participatory thing that I was trying to explain with those graphics was this kind of interaction between the political elites 
and their audiences. That's so powerful in the social media realm that so the audiences weren't just, you know, initially they were hearing from from President Trump and his um, campaign allies that um, that the election was going to be rigged. Uh, that their ballots would be printed in foreign countries, these kinds of things. And then they were told to go to the polls and look for evidence of voter fraud. And so they did. And many people went to the polls and misinterpreted what they saw as evidence of um, voter fraud, or they watched videos and thought they were seeing voter fraud. And they, and so you could actually see that, you know, the everyday people, not the people with thousands and thousands of followers in their accounts, but just everyday people were reporting that, they, you know, these 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 claims or experience that they were having. Um, and those would be, you know, those would get picked up and fed into these larger narratives of voter fraud. In one case we tracked pretty closely, there's these claims that the Sharpie pens were bleeding through um, and that these bleed, these bleed throughs were causing votes not to be counted. Well, it turns out that the, 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 the ballots were designed <laughs> to be used with Sharpie pens. The bleed through was not causing people to not have their vote being counted, but people were interpreted it as if they, they were, being disenfranchised. And they, and they eventually create this narrative that the Sharpie pens were just being given to Trump voters and were, you know, disenfranchising specifically Trump voters, especially in the state of Arizona after that state was called for Joe Biden. And so you could see this, they, they weren't just hearing from the political elites what, what the narratives were. They were creating their own narratives of voter fraud. And those were feeding back into uh, these kind of cycles where then the media elites would amplify these narratives. And so there's this back and forth that I think is just really powerful for people that they're feeling like they're being heard by their, you know, by their media or celebrity political leaders because they're, they're, hearing, they're seeing their voices amplified or retweeted. Um, and they're seeing how their experiences are being fed back into these, into these um, narratives of voter fraud. And, um, and over time, that became, you know, that, that echo effect generated anger. They mobilized it to have protests all over the country. And eventually we see what happens on January 6th with, you know, these social media profiles and all that anger that we've been studying online comes to life in a violent attack on our capital. As one of the experts in this field, could you tell me, are there a, are, is there a top list of maybe three things that keep you up at night? For me, I started my career by focusing on election law. And so when I think about disinformation and the things that you know just scare the blank out of me, it tends to be focused on the election. But is that also where your greatest concern center or should we be thinking more broadly about disinformation? I think certainly the election context is, is important. I, stepping back, I, I think if you look at some of the, the theoretical frameworks around disinformation and, and what it might be doing sort of not in, in an acute case, but pervasive disinformation and how it kind of, undermines our ability to have a shared reality or even sort of common ground and understandings of how democracy works. Um, it's a threat to democracy, right? I, I think, I'm not sure that's a consensus around all disinformation researchers, but many of us kind of see that it sort of there's direct attacks of disinformation against democracy, like we see in the election 2020 discourse. But there's also sort of this, the indirect effects of, of losing our common ground, of no longer having trust in information, no longer having trust in our government, no longer having trust in each other. And thinking about how dem democracies, you know, we need to come together as citizens to make decisions. And if there's no common ground left to stand upon, it, it'll be very hard to govern ourselves. And so I think um, certainly um, 
not just around elections, but around democracy more broadly. Um, that's one of the worries that I have. Um, the other one is uh, kind of related. It's very difficult to address hard problems when you don't have a common understanding of what those hard problems are. Um, and especially when, when motivated actors are trying to undermine how we understand those problems. So climate change, I think would be the next, the next thing mm-hmm. that I would put on that list is it'll be, it's, it already is sort of a target of, of information manipulation where, you know, folks have tried for generations now to, you know, make it hard for us to understand what's happening with climate change. And, and just confuse people and, and kind of put people in a state of, well, I can't do anything. It's either not happening or if it is, I can't do anything about it. And I think that's really, <laughs> I mean, this is an existential crisis. And so um, certainly um, we have a lot of work to do to figure out how to um, ha- how to bring folks together to understand what this challenge is and to kind of battle the, the manipulation that's happening um, that's trying to keep us away from that realization. Um, and so that's a, those, those two, democracy and, and climate change, I think they're not two of the same kinds of things and they're both very closely related, but um, they definitely keep me up at night, probably a little bit because we just had this heat wave in Seattle and it's just another reminder that, that things are not going very well. Well, let's try and end maybe if we can on not what keeps you up at night, but looking forward, what could allow you to sleep better by which I mean, what are some big picture solutions that we should all be thinking about? I know you mentioned it a few things, but you know, for listeners, I don't want people to end the podcast thinking, wow, that sounds terrifying. Are there a few things where if you could, you know, wave your magic wand, you would say, this is what we would do. I'm hopeful um, that there, that as a society, we're becoming more aware of this problem and not just awareness, because that's not going to be enough, because that can just make us a little bit overwhelmed, but that we're becoming aware of things that we can do to address it just in our own um, lives. I think that's going to be really important that, that we become, we're, we're now we're all citizen journalists now. We're all participants, not just consumers of information. And I think there's an awareness that that is beginning to happen, but it needs to continue where we understand that we all play a role in how information flows and we start taking the responsibility for that role. And I think um, there's, I'm hopeful that we can. Certainly if when I talk to people now compared to 2016, there's a lot of learning that's been done. I'm hopeful that the platforms are at least the ones that have the biggest audiences are, are learning to take their responsibility as well. And there might be something intertwined there where the platforms start doing a better job of giving people the information they need to make better decisions about the information they consume and the inf- information that they spread. I'm still worried. So I'm not going to, to say that these are going to be simple solutions, but I am, I am hopeful on those the, the third angle is, is always sort of gov- government, what governments can do to, to help with this problem. I am a little bit worried about that, but also um, we kind of know that it's coming. I think the platforms understand that regulation is around the corner. Um, what that looks like could take us in some really wild directions. So I'm a little, I'm not so hopeful about that as much as kind of just um, nervous, but um I'm still getting up in the morning, even after staring at this content for a long time. So I am hopeful there's things we can do, but we have a lot of work in front of us. Well, Professor Kate Starbird, we're going to have to uh, 
leave it at that and leave it at the first part of what I hope will be a longer conversation. You can find Professor Starbird on Twitter at Kate Starbird. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for continuing to tune in. Obviously, misinformation and disinformation and issues relating to this are near and dear to our hearts, and we're trying to find a variety of different ways to tackle this conversation and to provide all of us with some solutions and some concrete things that we can do. So we wish everybody a nice day. Bye.